0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In 1992, the play Twilight Los Angeles premiered at LA's Mark Taper Forum. It captured the tumultuous aftermath of the Rodney King trial verdict. Now that the country is once again confronting a racist system, how is art responding? What has changed? A lot, says Oscar Eustace. He's artistic director at New York's Public Theater.
1: I think there is a consciousness and there is a determination to actually change the structures of our lives that I don't think that was as coherent back when we were in 1992.
0: Today, Eustace speaks with the creator of Twilight Los Angeles, Anna Devere Smith. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is part of the Aspen Institute's Conversations with Great Leaders in memory of Preston Robert Tisch series, in collaboration with the Institute's arts program. Arts organizations in the United States have had a challenging year. Many are closed because of the coronavirus pandemic, but artists continue to work, thinking deeply about how to use their craft to push the country forward in this critical moment. Internally, leaders within these institutions are also considering how to work differently to address issues of race and equality. Oscar Eustace, who's the Harmon Eisner Artist-in-Residence at the Aspen Institute, says change needs to happen across an organization and shouldn't only be driven by the people at the top. Here's his heartfelt and candid conversation with actress and playwright Anna DeVere Smith.
2: Oscar, you and I have known each other for a long, long time, and, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, back in Los Angeles, those heated discussions that we had in my dressing room after every preview of Twilight Los Angeles, which was a play about the Los Angeles riots, actually being uh, shown on PBS at different stations um, right now. But you know, that was an extraordinary uh, opportunity for me, uh, for Gordon Davidson to have uh, brought me to the city and for the taper to um, fund and produce really an opportunity to learn about a city in turmoil. And you lived there too. You know, what's different
0: in
1: the sense of
2: the unrest that is, uh, you know, oh. all over the, the world right now after the murder of, of George Floyd?
1: Uh, the biggest thing that I think is different is 30 years of oppression. 30 additional years of political education, political sophistication. And I feel extremely optimistic about what these protests are gonna lead to. I think there is a consciousness um, and there is a determination to actually change the structures of our lives that I don't think that was as coherent back when we were in 1992. But I wanna say one thing about this, Anna, because I think about that room often. You did something that I have never seen equaled before or since. You created a room, you brought together a group of people, diverse people from different racial groups, ethnic groups, different positions, newspaper reporters, poets, uh, movement specialists, really incredible folks. And every night you invited them to sit in your green room and critique the performance you had just given and to do it honestly. And I, I, you probably remember, there was one night Hector walked out because he was so angry at, you know, and and your willingness to open up that kind of space for honest dialogue and your, forgive me, bravery in being to let your own self, your own work, be the, the site of dispute, to me is like a model of the best we could do right now. So I think the world, is in better shape than it was 30 years ago. But I think we need to figure out how to make art using that kind of bravery and that kind of collective thinking that you modeled back then.
2: Well, it, it was, uh, it, it's a terrible thing to say, but it was dependent on the crisis. Yeah, that's right. The crisis uh, was a part of it, that nobody in that room felt they knew. Nobody felt they knew, that's right. nobody, uh, you know? Elizabeth Alexander was with us. I remember the lighting designer marching out. How many lighting designers come to those kind of <laughs> conversations? I remember him marching out. I remember my assistant running after me. She was from Hong Kong. It's your play, Anna. You remember it's your play. So I do think that you know the crisis itself yields. What is what? You're optimistic. What do you think this crisis could yield?
1: Well, the thing that I think is already yielding is evidenced in Minneapolis. I'm from Minneapolis, and the fact that the Minneapolis City Council, with a veto-proof majority, has pledged to abolish the police department and seek other methods of public safety is an unbelievably radical move by a section of a government that is normally not unbelievably radical, city councils. They're going to have a lot of trouble up ahead. But what I think it's the recognition, I think it's the recognition that there are fundamental structures that need to change about our society, that cosmetic changes are not going to be good enough. And I don't want to pontificate about this because what you just remind us of the key to that kind of change is we knew we didn't have answers. We knew that we had to listen and keep our minds open and struggle. That's what we have to do. But. I'm feeling that happening. I, I don't know if you feel that this is different. It feels different than it did in 1992.
2: Well, I think that the um, the streets are more diverse than they were in 1992. And I recently, when I looked at a documentary about uh, the unrest, and it was, it was really monumental. The destruction was really monumental. And of course, not just property, but the assault on the Korean American community, some blacks. It was really monumental, and it's not at that particular scale. But let's let's talk about the theater because when Erica uh, originally uh, asked me to interview you, you know, and she gave me, for example. Um, uh, you know, these questions, you know, you know um, h- h- about really how the pandemic, how does live performance weather a pandemic, how can it move forward? And since that time, with this very dramatic uh, week in world history has happened, how is the theater responding to it? As you know, um, uh, African-American artists and I think artists of color, certainly uh, from different disciplines are... Um, speaking up, the We See You campaign and so forth, how, how do you, what, can anything happen? Yes. I mean, some of the demands. So this is very, in other words, it's very different than the other crisis, which is will your theater open ever again, right? right.
1: Well, in a way, the, the crisis now is will my theater or will any of our theaters deserve to open again? because we, we are being faced with a community, our own community, who is asking to hold us accountable and to hold us accountable for the words and the values that we use. And it is altogether right and proper that they do so. And uh, it's been a difficult couple of weeks. It's a couple of weeks in which I feel like we are learning a lot. I am spending a lot of time listening. I'm spending a lot of time listening to my own staff um, who have a lot to say, and rightly so. And also the artistic community, as you point out, is also speaking up. And I think, you know I, don't know, I don't know the answers to any of this, but I think my job right now, I don't wanna say my, what I think the job of the public right now is to recognize that we are also entangled in white supremacy. We are tangled in the racist assumptions that have built this country that we white leadership do not see those things as clearly as we must, and that we need to listen and learn how to see them better and figure out collectively how we're gonna to change to be more just, more equitable, more inclusive, more democratic, which are values that we deeply believe and have so far insufficiently upheld.
2: Well, let's think for a second um, about the mission of the public theater. And even if there are things in some of the original mission statements that need need to be restored, I have to say, you know, arriving in New York from San Francisco at the end of the seventies, walking into the public theater and seeing Ed Bullins walking around, uh, a playwright who was really, you know, hot in the sort of sixties cultural revolution. um, I wouldn't have seen Ed Bullins standing in the lobby of any other nonprofit theater or for-profit theater other than maybe the new federal theater or or other black theaters, but other white theaters, I can't think of one where Ed Bollins was standing and where Ed Bollins had a writer's workshop that you could just come. You didn't have to, you could just come and be there every Saturday. It's what I call a radical welcome. So there's something in the mission statement of the public theater that perhaps you can, you can, you can, you can cultivate further. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's exactly correct, Anna. I think the public theater has the most perfect mission of any theater I've ever been associated with. And don't get me wrong, I'm proud of the public. Under Joe's leadership and under George Wolf's leadership, George did a fantastic thing at the public, which is for a decade, George led the only major theatrical institution in the country that could not be called a white institution anymore. It was something else under George's leadership. And, you know, those magnificent gains, and I think we've continued to work on those values. All of those values are still our values. We're just being faced with one of those moments right now where we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, can we live up to these values better? Can we do this mission more completely than we've been doing it? And the answer to that is yes. And, you know, again, I don't mean to... I don't mean to knock the public. I think the public is a great institution. I think the public is demanding that we live up to what the public stands for, and that's requiring some real introspection right now.
2: Well, you know, in Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which is so eloquent in many ways, there is one very simple sentence, not many of the sentences are simple, which is that privileged groups do not give up their privileges willingly. Right. That it takes resistance, that it takes rebellion. That's right. Uh, you know, what are some of the privileges that the, you know, leaders of American artistic institutions that were you know had pretty fat bank accounts before the pandemic? What are some of the privileges you think they're they're going to have to give up?
1: I don't know the answer to that, Anna. Uh, what I can tell you is the problem, and this I've been seeing clearly more and more clearly is that so much of the leadership of the entire field, and I include myself, have been the beneficiaries of white privilege. We've been the beneficiaries of a system that is fundamentally founded on white supremacy. And knowing that and really looking at that and really acknowledging that, in my mind, requires that we listen to and respond to the voices of our staff, our artists and community, our Black staff, artists and community, our staff of color, our people of color artists and community, listen to their reflection of how they see us and what they see our privileges as being and work to break that down. If we are not actively working in the anti-racist movement, if we are not actively working to break down that privilege, we're part of the problem. And it's way too soon in this latest round of discussion that for me to deliver answers about that. But boy, I know it's the right question, and I know it's the right process to go through.
2: Well, what are some of the things you're hearing loudest? Because I have a feeling some of the folks uh, who are tuning in here also are hearing some things loudest, and maybe maybe the arts isn't unique in that way. What would you say is sure, travel.
1: Well, look. I think um, one of the things that I hear loudest is that there are decision-making processes that feel organic and natural to me, that to other people feel completely secretive and opaque. That the actual what, what, how decisions are made, how the levers of power are moved, feels. impossible to see into, feels like some kind of Illuminati working, feels private and secretive. I never would have said that. That that was not how I look at it, but I'm hearing that criticism and I'm taking it really seriously. And there is a call for radical transparency, which I think is, um, you know, I'm hearing a lot and it resonates with me. It sounds right to me. Um, I'm finding, I mean, I, I, yeah, you know, in my personal practice, um, I have had conversations with my staff, which I, in the course of the conversation, I realized, oh my God, I hadn't realized that I had been making decisions in this manner. And that's wrong. I have to change that. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm hearing unexamined assumptions. Unexamined assumptions about who has power, who has control, who gets privileged access. All of those things are, I'm gonna diverge for just a second because part of, I, I come from a tradition, as you know, I come from a, a Marxist tradition. And the genuine criticism that has been leveled against that tradition is that it's a tradition that privileged class struggle over racial struggle that saw racial oppression as secondary to class oppression, that saw it as a a phenomena, not a root cause. And I feel like in the last weeks, I have, I mean, I've, I've known for a long time that that analysis was flawed and partial and mechanical, but in the last weeks, I feel like I've been educated about how racism and capitalism have been utterly entwined from the very beginning of this country, that the freedom of America, of course, we always knew that freedom and slavery stood side by side as these seemingly contradictory elements, the good America and the bad America. But when you realize they were interdependent from the beginning, that freedom for white males was absolutely dependent on slavery and genocide, it it was never separate. it was all that's to me that's a radical and a beautifully radical form.
2: Um, what can art do? What are the limitations?
1: Look, art has so many limitations that it's almost embarrassing to talk about them. There's so many things we can't do, and I know you. And I know you and I live with the awareness of those limitations all the
2: time. I think it's ridiculous to say we can save stuff. I mean, when you're talking about that transparency, I mean, I'm not, I would love to know what's happening inside, uh, you know, uh, civic centers in terms of why we can't convict the cops. But I mean, what's in your sense of, what's the limitations of what we do?
1: Limitations of what we can do is that I don't think we people walk into our theaters thinking one thing and walk out with a new ideology. I don't think we transmit ideology. I don't think we transmit information. Uh, let me tell you the most effective, politically effective piece of theater that I was ever personally involved with was Angels in America. What? And when I say that that was politically effective, I don't think many people walked in being you know right wing homophobes and walked out saying you know let me have a drink with Larry Kramer. But I do think that people had the experience of walking into that theater, and I know personally a number of homophobic people who walked in that theater, had the experience of identifying for seven hours with these brilliant, complex, proudly gay characters and walked out having had that incredible empathy with people that they had previously othered. And I think that actually changes people's hearts, changes people's hearts. So there was no legislation that happened because of Angels in America. Right. I do think it was part of the changing of how this country looked at gay people in a fundamental, and only a part of it, but a, a part that I'm proud to have a small part in.
2: That's right, I completely agree. Now we're getting questions, which is so fantastic. Oh my God, you won't believe how many there are. Uh, do you think, Uh, What's different now is an awareness of the role police behavior slash violence plays.
1: Yes, I think we have a much more sophisticated understanding of that. And I think we've been forced to realize that by the black community, forcing the rest of this country to realize what the violence that the police have perpetrated on the black community, which has been going on for hundreds of years. It's not new. But I think the entire country being forced to face it is mm-hmm. new. Yeah, comparably, when we all watched the war in Vietnam on our television screens, it changed something about it, which is why the army doesn't let television reporters travel with them anymore. Mm-hmm. But it changed something about our perception of that war, and I, I think that change—what I read—is it's very far-reaching. Uh, it's not affected a small group of Americans. I mean the. Even the polls, the vast majority of Americans know that there was a terrible crime that was perpetrated in Minneapolis. That's that's different.
2: Although, I mean, I want to warn us all that when I think about 1992, of course, 30 years before that, there had been, you know, a riot that was sparked by police brutality. And so, you know, and of course, the Rodney King beating was the first time we were able to see it. And now we have these... uh, small instruments that help help us see it. What can the, uh, this is a question, what can theater board members do to help bring about needed change, especially white theater board members?
1: I think you have to pay very close attention to the institution that whose board you're on. I think you have to make sure that the mission statement reflects values that are not just about the art and not just platitudes, but are really about a just and equitable and democratic society. And then make sure your, your job as a board member is you are a member of the board of governance of the theater. And sometimes I think board members focus too narrowly on the money. And if the money is going okay, then everything's okay. But I think it's also absolutely part of your charter to focus on the mission of your institution and make sure that you are overseers and stewards of that mission, not simply of the fiscal health of the organization, but of the social and artistic value that the organization says it's doing. Because I know at my theater, I've got a brilliant, very engaged board, and we're not gonna be able to make the changes that we need to make without the full support and buy-in of that board of directors. If it's just on the staff level, it's much more temporary. It can be blown away by the next guy who sits in my chair or something board has to be at the center of the changes.
2: Well, in terms of uh, leadership, and that's what this series is, um, how do you how will how, give uh, I don't mean to you know, of course, you know you know for you to tell me anything confidential, but it does occur to me that you've been listening very carefully and you know you're going to have to communicate this to your board in a way that you get their support and their help to do some of the stuff that you're inevitably going to do what what is it to take sort of news new news sometimes bad news how do you do that how will you walk between the two
1: I think uh, with honesty to the best of my ability and with humility, Uh, I don't think, like I said, I don't think I have the answers to this. I think on a very pragmatic level, one of the things that I need to do is make sure there is direct communication between my staff and the board. The board itself has been saying to me in the last two weeks, we don't know enough of the staff to be able to evaluate this. I have to help create the platform to change that so that actually dialogue doesn't all run through me. Because I think one of the things I'm facing, Anna, is um, I, you know, I don't wanna say the end of my career, but there's a lot less in front of me than there is behind me. And right now, I think a lot of my challenge is not figuring out how to continue to exert unitary leadership but how to figure out how to genuinely decentralize leadership, how to pass leadership on, how to, I mean, how to, how to make sure that when change happens, it happens across the whole institution. And again, is not just driven by the person at the top because it's fragile if it's driven by the person. At the top. And the, the, the vision of any single person is partial and obstructed And, you know, nobody sees the whole picture. And if we don't figure out a way to make sure that we can bring in the views of far more people than just me and determine the future of this place, we're not living up to our mission.
2: Well, that's a whole different idea of a director. Uh, Is your title producing director, producing artistic director?
1: Just, Just artistic
2: director. Right, so, but the whole idea of the director in any way, you know, the director of anything, a film, anything, the idea is that the director, it's the director's vision. Right, so, I mean, just maybe, 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 because it could be that this is bigger than how you run an institution. It could
1: be. I have to say that as a director, I never feel like my job is to institute my vision. I feel like my job is to create a room where everybody gets to bring their best. And hopefully it's a room where everybody bringing their best merges into one thing. And of course, sometimes I have a high concept for a production Julius Caesar that's my idea, but that's rare. Most of the time I'm in the room with very strong playwrights who have very strong opinions about what their shows should look like. And I am trying to make my job is to make sure I'm creating a a space where people can do their best. Now, that's a pretty interesting idea if you take that out from the directing room and apply it to the artistic director's chair. I try to do that, but I don't think I've done it as fully as I need to be doing it, as I could be doing it. And, And honestly, that's exciting. That feels to me like that's the that's the joy of this moment. Can can I change?
2: Can you change as a leader? And you know, I know there are people who are listening who you know are are thinking about that same thing. Now, this is definitely like a theater crowd. Um, <laughs> how do we hold those in commercial theater accountable? Accountable. How do we speak up and have our voices heard within the commercial theater world? And of course, you've had a chance to walk in both.
1: Yes, I've had a chance to walk in both, but I walk in both in a very um, singular position because I am never a profit participant in a Broadway show. I am always the nonprofit producer who originated the show. And my theaters can get a revenue stream, but I never personally make any money, which is fantastic because it means I don't have to worry about the profit of the show. I just have to worry about supporting the artists and the idea of the show. And the only thing I'll say is, you know, the profit motive is um, very omnivorous. It tends to, it's a big center of gravity. But every commercial producer that I've worked with works in a the theater because they love the theater and they love the art. And every producer I've worked with, and this is without exception, tremendously cares about how they're perceived by artists. They want to be perceived by artists as artist-friendly. And that means that if artists really are able to organize and say, these are our values, these are what we stand for, we want you to live up to them. This is a small enough community that I think that can have a tremendous gravitational effect on the commercial field as well as on the nonprofit field. It has to on the nonprofit field. That's our job.
2: Yeah, so you don't see a real split, you know, it's not like uh, the commercial theater folks are walking around with cigars and you know, like circus masters. You you don't see a real split.
1: That that has not been my experience of the commercial producers that I've worked with.
0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas to Go. Join us for a set of conversations and ideas relevant to the times in which we live and the future we face. The Aspen Ideas Festival is going all digital, and it's entirely free. Beginning June 28th, the festival will host a series of conversations streamed on our website, aspenideas.org. Speakers including Anthony Fauci, Anna DeVere Smith, Michael Eric Dyson, Brian Green, Bill Gates and Alicia Garza, and many others will share fresh thinking across a range of topics. The arts, science, the economy, diplomacy, democracy, and racial injustice will be brought to the fore in these conversations. Sign up on AspenIdeas.org to receive program updates and reminders. And don't forget to tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern, starting June 28th. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Anna DeVere Smith. You know,
2: I know how loved you are at NYU,
1: I could say the same to you, Anna.
2: Well, but let's think for me, you're learning a lot. And you said, well, a lot behind me, less in front of me. And the only place we can really have process is in educational environments, real process. Uh, What are you gonna teach? How are you gonna take what you're learning right now and teach these kids to have a different idea? By the way, they probably all have a vision. How? What are you going to tell them to help them get ready for what I think you think is going to be anew?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And again, I have to leave with the answers. I don't know yet. I'm still figuring that out. But the second thing was when I first came to NYU, I was talking to the dean of the film school and she said something to me that I just totally, I mean, I, I loved. She said, there are two things that we believe about students who come to the graduate program here is first they have a vision our job is not to mess with that vision and second is they need to learn about every aspect of making a film so they can do every part of filmmaking and i thought that is such a beautifully clear statement of how we should train artists don't mess up their vision but give them all the tools they can to realize that vision to make it real and in a way, that's the challenge for us. And I, I you know, every, every year I redefine a class that I teach in the spring with arts and public policy. And that will be the next thing that, you know, the next thing I do is make a new class for next spring and it will be informed by this, but I don't know what it'll be yet.
2: Mm. Um, what do you think of the expression defund the police?
1: Um, I don't want to talk about the expression, I want to talk about the reality. The reality is we are spending way too much money on our police forces and way too little money on prevent preventive programs, social programs, health care programs, mental health programs, summer activities for kids. We're spending way too little money on the things that can actually help people. And n- instead of throwing them in, to the penal industrial complex, and you know, I know you, you, you know Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow, and the the description that that book gives of the way that um, oppression of Black people has gone from slavery to Jim Crow to incarceration is a brilliant understanding of the continuity of Black oppression in the United States, and sadly, our society. Has let the police force be a leading edge of that. And we've given them military equipment, for God's sakes, to, for to some as the old saying goes, to somebody with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's we know that this kind of violent, brutal aggression is not the way to create a peaceful society, much less a just society. So I am entirely in favor of taking resources away from police forces and putting them into other social programs.
2: Sherilyn Eiffel, who is an extraordinarily gifted communicator, uh, the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, talks about how America has always made investments. And you know, in, in, and the invest in, investment in the criminal justice system meant that, for example, where do you now find mental health? In prisons. Where do you find education in prisons? But also, you know, she talks about how it, the country, America, invested in an interstate highway system. That gives you a sense of the scope
1: That's right?
2: Of what we can do. That's right. Right? And, Thinking and, big.
1: And specifically, that investment was at the behest of automobile and gas companies who wanted to make sure that public transportation would not get a foothold in the United States. And by God, they won the U.S. government and the taxpayers paid to create a society that can only be managed by the internal combustion engine. And that's an example of an incredibly negative use of that huge power the federal government has. And the mass incarceration is the same thing. It's anyway, not the same thing, but another example.
2: What can we as theater makers do to uplift other stories? Do we need to leave that to artists of color? I think this is an excellent question. What, what would you I that mean answer implied to it in be? it is what it, the question is what can we as theater makers? But I think what is implied is what can we as white theater makers do? Right.
1: do and Anna, can I can I ask you what you would say to that
2: question? Well, I'm too radical for that. And I'm too radical for it because all this about you, it's not about me, but I'm very concerned the extent to which my students feel only people can say, you know, that in, in other words, that what we can say is connected to our birth race.
1: Right.
2: And uh, I mean, it d- wouldn't surprise you that I don't agree with that. Right. So, so what, 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 how, do you, how do you think about this? Do we need to leave that to artists of color? What can we as theater makers do to uplift other stories? Do we need to leave that to artists of color?
1: It's a very tricky question because, and I don't think there's any simple answer to it as there is usually not to any real artistic question. There's a couple of different values that are warring here. And one is the fact that you have to make sure that you are giving space to people to tell their own story. Every great movement in theater history has come about because we've expanded the enfranchisement of the stage and we've given the stage over to more people who get to be the subjects of their own history, not the objects of their own history. So that empowering of voices of color is absolutely necessary. Yet at the same time, as Americans, we are all bound up together in a system which is built on racism, is built on oppression, and, implicates all of us so we can't leave all of the work of talking about that system we can't leave all of the work of investigating that system to anybody else but ourselves we are responsible for responsible for our own actions we're responsible for our own lives we're responsible for the art we make and if we want the art we make to change the world we have to find a ground on which we can stand to talk about changing the world and that's going to be Vexed ground all the time. Yeah. As you know, as you 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 work, and one of the brilliant things about your work is you take really complicated situations and you manage to both clarify you clarify them enormously, without ever simplifying them. It nev- you never walk out of one of your shows going, "I got the answer." You walk out of that show going, "I have empathy for a variety of experiences around." the Rodney King uprising or what happened in Crown Heights. And that, that's what art can do, is to give you the empathy of alternative
2: perspectives. It could be that our theater, you know, hasn't been vexed enough. You know, the ground hasn't been vexed enough. I kind of think in the visual arts, they may have been a little bit more vexed, I don't know why, maybe there's more money around, who who knows, but um, now there's somebody here who just wants to know point blank, and I, think you have a crystal ball. Yikes. When are we gonna see live performance again?
1: Anna, who told you I have a crystal ball? <laughs> I just asked,
2: I thought so.
1: This is, this is what I wanna say. It is not up to me, it is not up to any of us when we see live performance again. We will, I, I can speak for the public, we will be doing live performance again when it is medically and ethically safe to do so, and not one minute before. And is that gonna be in August or is that gonna be in August of 2021? I don't know, because that depends on medical breakthroughs that, and, and other things that we're not in control of. What I know is that our job as a theater is to try to keep doing our work as, as well as we can in whatever conditions we find ourselves in, and to be ready to come back and demonstrate that we've got something worth
2: saying when it's time to come back. What do you think it's going to look like? What are the plays going to look like in your dream, your dream head as, you know, thinking about it. what? What, is it going to be the stuff you plan to do? Is it going to be new stuff?
1: I think it's going to be some of both, Anna. And I think I'm so, I'm in such the infancy of learning. A couple of things I can say. Um, We know that allowing people to participate in the making of the theater as our public works does, inviting people to make their own theater, has been a crucial democratization of our process. We know that going to where people live with our mobile unit has been um, the most assuredly diverse audiences we've ever had. So I think that's going to be part of it. Uh, we know that the limited digital work that we've done so far reaches beyond geographic barriers in a kind of breathtaking way. People are able to see the work who've never been able to see the work before. I don't think we're going to abandon that. But I think the real leaders of this are going to be the artists who work at the theater and making sure that they have the chance to fully express, again, not only what it means to come back, but what it means to come back more democratic, better than we were before. And that's that's certainly gonna be our goal.
2: I thought of you and Tony, when I read a paper written by Charles Rosenberg at at Harvard, um, uh, which was about the the three-act structure of the AIDS epidemic. And it has caused me to think about the crises that we are in, uh, our, our problem with police brutality and race and racism and the pandemic. If this were a three act play, what act are we in right now?
1: Uh, I think we're in the rising action of the second act. Um, I think we've hit the end of the first act, the conflict is joined, and now the conflict is moving towards some kind of climax. And what you and I know about plays is that they only end when something changes, something has to change for a play to come to an end. And if, I mean, I'm gonna, sorry, the thing I'm gonna say is this country before COVID, before the police murders that we've just witnessed has been at a turning point already. We are either going to continue to lurch in an authoritarian nationalist, xenophobic, racist, walled off direction, as much of the world is, as India is, as Russia is, as Britain is, as Hungary is, we're gonna continue, Brazil, we're gonna continue down that path, or we're going to do something that really changes how this country runs. And the theater will be a small part of that, but we need to try and do our part. Because that decision of which direction we go, it's very reminiscent to me of the 1930s. Only this time, the fate of the planet is really at stake because the planet, the species is not going to be able to survive if we don't change directions from where we've been going.
2: Well, as first artist in residence for the Aspen Institute, I want to welcome you into the fold. Thank you. Um, and to leave by asking you what we at Aspen can do to make your residency worthwhile to you and meaningful.
1: Um that's a that's a great question, which is what people always say when they don't know immediately how to answer it. But but it would just make it a great question. So there's nothing rehearsed about this. Here would be my dream, Anna that one of the things that I'm able to do during my time here is to elevate the voices of other artists who I really believe in and who don't have platforms like this. Because I think there is too great a divide between people like us who have access to the incredibly intelligent, well-meaning, influential people who make up the Aspen Institute family and the artists who are really going to change the world. There's too much distance. And if I could in some way help bridge that distance, that would be a really successful residency
2: for me. Very exciting. I really, very, very exciting. And I I look forward to it.
0: Oscar Eustace is a professor at New York University and Artistic Director of the Public Theater. Throughout his career, he's been devoted to the development of new work that speaks to the issues of our time. Anna DeVere Smith is an actress, playwright, author, and professor. She's also a trustee at the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion was held by the Aspen Institute's arts program in collaboration with the Institute series, Conversations with Great Leaders in Memory of Preston Robert Tisch. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.